0: Well, welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had a timely conversation today. I know Sri Lanka has been in the news for the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, for sure, Preston. We had a returning guest. We talked to Dr. Stuart Smythe from the University of Saskatchewan. He's an ag economist there, and he does a lot of work with looking at the economic benefits of different ag innovations. And so he really has some input on the Sri Lanka situation, given that rising food prices, basically because of some of the decisions by the government, caused a lot of unrest there. And in fact, they, I believe, overthrew their government. Yeah, I
0: hope that's a cautionary tale for both consumers and farmers, especially here in the developed countries. You know, it's really unfair for us in the Americas, for instance, to kind of critique production ag in foreign countries where maybe a huge proportion of their daily spend is on food, whereas here in in the developed country, we really have a lot more flexibility and cushion. And I really appreciated Stuart, you know, talking about, you know, the freedom to operate. uh, Some of the benefits that biotechnology provides from a sustainability perspective as well. Um, So I think, yeah, this conversation will provide benefit to the farmers out there and helping them tell their story and also for the consumers just to learn about how production ag really happens in the field and then gets to their fork. So let's just jump right into this great conversation with Stuart. Well, welcome back, Stuart. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now?
2: Sure thing, Preston. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Great to see you and Jason again. And uh, my background is I grew up on a mixed farm in southeast Saskatchewan. So we had a section of land and about 125 head of cattle. And I, in my mid-30s, I, I wound up with a research grant opportunity that had to be held by a university professor. So that sort of introduced me to academia and I enrolled in grad studies, got my PhD and, and then set up uh, my own research chair. So I've got a research chair in agri-food innovation and sustainability. And most of my research focuses around sustainability, agriculture, innovation, and food. And I publish a weekly blog at the acronym of that. So it's safefood, S-A-I-F-O-O-D.ca. Uh, we, we put out blogs, my students write blogs and we publish a lot of, of student blogs around agriculture, policy, innovation. So um, it, it can be a great uh, resource reference point. And most of my research is is now trying to better understand how crop production products, so like, you know, the, the chemicals, insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, and and biotechnology are really driving the, the sustainability of agriculture.
1: And there's a lot of misconceptions about those products out there in the general public, aren't there?
2: A- absolutely, yeah. We did a survey of consumers a couple of years ago. And the majority of consumers now think the chemicals being applied to crops are more toxic than they were even 25 or 50 years ago. And, and, and of course, we in the industry know that our, our chemicals are becoming more benign, but it's because of all the misinformation by a lot of environmental activist organizations that are you know, deliberately trying to, to misinform consumers about the importance and the, and the safety of agriculture chemicals.
0: The president has a great example. He's an entomologist. He always uses when he's... Yeah. Whenever I give a talk like this, I've got a, a, a publication from the University, University of Illinois back in 1940, where they, they recommended applying arsenic mixed with molasses to control <laughs> cutworms. So I'm like, <laughs> you think transgenic technology is bad. Let's go back to arsenic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty frightful for consumers mm-hmm. today, right? And we see a lot of this with You know, there's been some some recent release of some some pesticide residues on on food products in the U.S., and a lot of environmental activists have been been sort of chatting that up. But really interesting research a few years ago that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did an access to information request from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency about chemical residues on organic food products, and they found that 46% of the organic produce tested Um, had had chemical residues now now virtually all of those were within the the safety margins uh, for pesticide residues but it goes to show that you know the the organic and the environmental movement are trying to paint conventional agriculture with a, a black brush when when the organic industry is doing exactly the same thing but they just conveniently ignore those facts
1: Dr. Smythe, you you made an interesting point there when you talk about the residues. And, and so there's a, an allowable residue level for all kinds of things set by the, the regulatory organizations and our governments. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because a lot of people, you know, the conception is out there that, oh, nothing is acceptable as far as something that would be harmful to our body. We would want a 0% of, you know, whatever that might be. Can you talk to that a little bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Jason. So, So that's a really great point that i i think a lot of the society thinks that zero is the threshold that our food safety systems work at yet everybody knows that that zero is is never attainable really in any aspect of of what we're trying to do in terms of food production so so whether it's bits of straw or dirt um tree leaves kind of thing that that get in when crops are harvested and end up in the food process i mean those those typically aren't going to cause us um, much of a harmful effect there. But certainly there's other aspects um, from from the, the residues. And so the, the way that works is they determine sort of what the the danger threshold is, and then they'll cut it back by up to 100%. So if the the danger level is is say 500 parts per million, they might scale that back to say 50 parts per million. And then that's the maximum right so you can have up to 50 parts per million and still have a safe consumable food product so so the science is is they're not setting it at you know this is where anything above is dangerous they determine where that danger level is and then they scale it way down so so there's a huge safety factor you know you know in any of the residues that we're consuming and and i understand that as an as a public that doesn't have the depth of knowledge about how that risk assessment process worked that hearing that that chemical residues are in food products is is definitely concerning and i think that one of the challenges is that the environmental movement is trying to portray all chemicals as dangerous a friend of mine who's a professor in in waterloo in ontario he asked his first year biology students you know how many of them think chemicals are dangerous and for the last few years over half of the students coming into university believe that all chemicals are dangerous Yet, you know we, we'll drink coffee you know i'm sure everybody's had a cup of coffee this morning or maybe a beer or a glass of wine last yeah. evening and so we we've all you know we're, we're taking chemicals in virtually on an hourly basis from while we're awake yet you know the the activists opposed to modern agriculture are really trying to demonize the, the important role of chemicals in food safety if if we didn't have chemicals i mean that the 800 million that are food insecure would be significantly higher um, than it, than it currently is.
0: Can you speak to any current situations where maybe a country is food insecure? The first one that comes to mind is Sri Lanka, for example. Um, I know the president banned synthetic fertilizers and pesticides really, I mean, fairly recently. And I just was reading this morning that now nine out of 10 families are skipping at least one meal a day.
2: Yeah, that, I mean, that, sort of the, the poster child of of what happens when you listen to environmental activists and you're making policy decisions that have no empirical science behind them. And, and really, that's what Sri Lanka did. They, they banned the use of synthetic fertilizers. They banned the use of uh, synthetic chemicals. Two years ago, Sri Lanka was a net exporter of rice. And for wow. the last year, they've been having to import rice because their yields have just absolutely cratered. Um, And, and, and so it's not surprising that, you know, if you're importing rice and food prices, you know, transportation costs have, have gone up significantly over the last six or eight months. Right. So it's, they've had riots and, and, and changing in their government because of the food shortages brought around by, you know, activists, misinforming the government about the vital role that organic and um, agroecology can play in in food in feeding a a population and 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 they have 100 confirmed that organic and agroecology simply cannot feed populations the other one of concern Preston and Jason is is Mexico and and they've scheduled a, a glyphosate and a ban on GM crops to start in uh, the 1st of January, 2024. And and we did some analysis on that in the winter and, and got it published in the spring. And, and we're estimating that because Mexico is going to ban the import of GM corn for livestock feed, it's going to increase um, their cost of corn import by $3 billion a year. And that's going to push up food prices for everybody in Mexico. So, you know, these environmentalists really... You, I'm beginning to question their humanity because if you're going to push up food costs for food insecure, low-income households, what kind of humanity is driving your decision-making? We should be trying to make decisions and and find innovations that help lower the cost of food for low-income households so that they they can buy more nutritious food to to keep their families fed and, and provide for a healthier lifestyle. I mean, shouldn't that To me, that should be the objective of modern agriculture.
1: Well, often we can sit and we can look at these things. You know, a lot of the people that are uh, very concerned about maybe the the use of chemicals in in food production or whatever that might be, um, a a lot of them are sitting in, you know, the United States, Canada, very developed, wealthy countries. And, uh, you know, they have the option to pay extra for their food for these food production practices. And so... That's not always an option in somewhere like Mexico or some of these other countries.
2: I think that's an excellent point, Jason, is that you know we benefit from such a successful food production system that other than maybe a couple of times at the start of them pandemic, right? We saw some some spaces in our grocery stores where where there was panic buying and a bit of hoarding. But really, that's the only time in my fifty odd years that I can remember a, a store shelf being empty in a in a North American grocery store, um, but it, I've been to developing countries, and you go into the grocery store, and and some of them, I mean, only fifty percent of the aisles are full because that's all the all the food that's available in that store that day. So you, you see people lining up outside grocery stores. Um, those are those are symptoms of an unsuccessful agriculture and innovation system, right? That they desperately need modern innovations to increase their food production um because i i think the challenge is is that in industrial societies we have been so successful and so it it gives those opponents the luxury of saying well we really don't need these innovations to be food secure Um, and and i would disagree with that fundamentally that you're right we we do have that luxury of organic and and these other niche market products but in food insecure countries, it you know a lot of these households are eating maybe only eating once a day. So, you know, what happens if if they miss that? Then they're looking at maybe eating every other day. Well, we know that leads to all kinds of health problems, especially in in developing children. Right, it leads to stunting and, and lifelong health effects.
1: So well, There's two kind of uh, uh, points I'd like to kind of get your get your thoughts on here. Um, one is uh, you know obviously. The the big concern with organic production is that we can't protect those crops, right? So we can see um, pretty big losses in some cases. Um, and, and I'd like to hear, actually, you know, as an economist, what what kind of numbers do you have around that? And then I'll follow up with my other question.
2: It, it it really varies by crop type. So that if you if you lump them all together, the the loss yield loss for organic is between thirty and thirty five percent, but in some of the the fruits and vegetables, the losses can be up to to sixty five or seventy percent. and 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 that's with the organic industry having the ability to use up to one hundred and forty odd natural chemical compounds. I've, that's what the Canadian Food Inspection Agency allows up here is about one hundred and forty two or three different chemicals at the organic industry. So so they're using chemicals as much as conventional agriculture, yet they're still producing. Uh, significantly less volume at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, that's a huge misconception. I think that no, no chemicals whatsoever used in organic production, and and really a lot of these, you know, when we talk about natural chemicals, I mean, there's some that are very effective, right? But there's also some that are effective and maybe uh, a little bit less safe than the than the ones that have been put together. So really, there's there's a lot more to this story that people realize. I think the other point I kind of wanted to make and get your thoughts on. I, I've read a little bit about what we we see this halo effect. So you know, here we're sitting in Central Illinois, Preston and I. There's there's a decent amount of Organic production in this area. And uh, they can be fairly successful. You know, maybe their yields are 10% off on average or 15% off of, of the conventional farmers. However, they benefit from those GMO crops, right? They they they're in a field surrounded by BT corn, for instance, that that kills all the a lot of the corn rootworm. Those fields that are down the road that are organic benefit from that GM technology, right?
2: yeah yeah, absolutely, Jason. So it's it's organic farmers and even conventional farmers that decide not to grow BT varieties. they're definitely benefiting. There was a, a study done out of that area oh about ten years ago and and they estimated that the benefits were around six and a half billion dollars, but about a third of those benefits were going to farmers not growing BT corn varieties. So some of those would definitely be organic farmers. Uh, there's research also out of China and India that, uh, the adoption of BT cotton was doing exactly the same thing, that, that farmers that weren't adopting BT cotton varieties were benefiting from lower chemical use just simply due to the lower um, pest populations.
1: I always think that's a super interesting concept. You know, when you look back in this country and, and others too, it, well, others around the world right now where they don't have the advanced protection that we have. A few years ago, they were talking about locusts in Africa and, and things like that. And you can look back in the U.S., um, grasshopper, you know, I, I don't know, We may be t- I, I've maybe brought this up at some point, but our, our kids and I always enjoy reading the Laura Ingalls Wilder stories. And, and there's a story in there about how the, basically they're out there trying to survive on the prairie and the grasshoppers come in and it's a big cloud that basically just wipes everything out. And they think, well, we'll be able to come back again next year. Well, next year, the crop's starting to come up, and all those larvae hatch out, or the eggs, however, grasshoppers, I, I'm not the entomologist Preston this, so I don't want to say the wrong term here. It's but like the Rocky Mountain locusts, yeah. <laughs> to be accurate, but yeah. <laughs> so they, they hatch out of the ground, and they wipe everything out again. And, and really, there's nothing slowing them down at that point. And so if we're 100% organic, that's a much worse situation than being... organic or 15% organic, even for the organic
2: growers themselves. Well, some of the numbers I saw out of East Africa, they had those massive plagues of locusts, clouds of locusts going through probably about this time or maybe into September. And they said some of these swarms were so big that they were eating as much food as could feed 35,000 people in a day. Wow. So so for food insecurity, you know, the technologies that reduce insect damage, or, or help protect against insect damage. I mean, in some cases, that's arguably the the difference between life and death.
0: Well, Jason, kind of mentioned developed countries. I'm curious, what's the state of the union in Canada right now from a regulation freedom to operate standpoint? Um, are you optimistic, or, or what's going on up there?
2: Probably a little bit of a mixed bag, Preston. That you know, um, we're following along. With the USDA's decision that genome editing is, is just going to be conventional plant breeding, Health Canada made that announcement in the spring, and, and the CFIA is likely, uh, we're expecting that to be followed up here within the next month or so. That uh, So so we'll be able to use gene editing, or our plant breeders will be, not me, um, to, to do all kinds of, I think, really fundamental innovations in, in all of our crop types. Where we're starting to see some pushback is is our federal government has has called for a, a mandate, a 30% reduction in, in fertilizer emissions or emissions from fertilizer. And and so given that there's really very little that can be tweaked to reduce emissions in the, the actual uh, production processes of creating fertilizer, the way that would, that would have to be achieved is through a 30% reduction in farm use of fertilizer. And so this is a decision that the Canadian government has made Again, w- without any scientific evidence or without any baseline data to say, you know, what, it, what are fertilizer use patterns looking like over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've adopted all kinds of um, innovative seeding technology where we've got variable rate technology, both for seed and fertilizer applications uh, and talking to some farm groups over the past few weeks. two-thirds to three-quarters of farmers are using soil testing and getting um, nutrient maps for their fields. so so it's not like they're going out and just simply broadcasting 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre you know they're using that variable rate application technology to make sure they're they're only putting on the 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 proper amount of inputs because you know nobody wants to run around their field and and raise their input cost by 10 or 20 dollars an acre just for the heck of it right i mean you're just throwing money into the ground that that you're really not going to get a return on
1: and do you have the numbers Stuart? i i know i've i've heard and i don't don't remember the exact numbers but the amount of uh production that's being done with the same inputs on the same amount of ground how has that efficiency increased over the past say 30 or 50 years do you do you have those numbers
2: no i'm afraid i don't have numbers quite like that jason um i've seen some of that too particularly on the, the dairy side of things, right? They're talking about um, how many hundred pounds of milk are produced per head of livestock, and, and the numbers are, are just absolutely staggering. The, the one I tend to use more, Jason, and Preston is, it's a report by the um, Organization for, the, for Economic Cooperation and Development, and, and they show a, a, a visual going back over about um, the past hundred years in terms of land use, population, and food production. And since 1960, we've decoupled production increases from land use increases. So over the past 60 years, food productions increased 390% and we're only using 10% more land. Wow. So that, that shows you just how vital innovation in terms of, you know, herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, synthetic fertilizers, you know. Genetically modified crops or gene edited crops, all of those innovations, plus the equipment side of things that are reducing um, inputs as well. I mean, all of these come together and make this huge system of innovation that that's really allowed us to become uh, a population of almost eight billion people and and still, um, tr- you know, feeding about ninety percent of them to to the levels they need, you know, nutritionally required.
1: I'd like to uh, go back to one thing you mentioned. You you briefly mentioned gene editing and how uh, that's hopefully going to be regulated like conventional breeding. There's a comparison there. There's a technique that was used for years and it's probably kind of fallen out of vogue because of the random nature of it. But mutation breeding was used for for a long time in plant breeding where they basically expose... Plant DNA to mutagens and trigger mutations in in the plant, and hope that we would get something that was beneficial. Right, so there's a few examples. I think uh, the pink grapefruits are one example of something that was created that way, and there, there's probably a few other things too. On the whole, I don't know that it was a super successful way of doing things, just because of the random nature of it. But you know, gene editing kind of gets you know, just like GMO, it kind of gets a scary. Uh, Association with it that the general public says, "Oh, that that sounds bad," but you know we've accepted this mutation breeding for for a really long time. I mean, uh, uh, probably going back to the maybe almost a hundred years they've been using that technique.
2: Almost, Jason. I think it started in the 1930s.
1: Okay, yeah. So you know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have some comments there. I I just think it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that you know what is accepted and what is not because because varieties and hybrids created through mutation breeding are Totally accepted in organic production, correct?
2: Yes, absolutely they are. Yeah. I, again, it goes back, I think, to our zero tolerance. We've asked consumers, so, is a tomato that you consumed last year identical to the tomato you consumed this year? Have any genes changed? And the vast majority of consumers say, no, the tomatoes are identical. yet. there's a natural rate of mutation with all plant varieties. and, And the research I like to cite is is a study from the the 90s that that looked at a variety of natural rates of mutation and depending on the the plant species, up to 20 genes per generation can mutate. So if we change two or three genes within a wheat variety to be a little bit more drought tolerant, we're actually creating or inducing less of a change than might naturally happen just moving from one generation to the next. Again, the the, I, the public really has no understanding that that a a plant or, or really anything will will naturally mutate from one generation to the next. Yet, that's how disease develops in us as humans. Right? Cancer happens because one of our genes mutates and suddenly becomes a, a cancerous gene and and starts to grow. So, it, it's part of life on this planet that mutation is is a natural part of our environment so i think that's a really interesting way to try to frame it is that plants naturally mutate and what science is doing now is is tweaking really vital genes based on evidence that we do know what those changes are and 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 we can ensure that the varieties going into the environment are as safe as the varieties currently in the environment
1: one thought, you know, you, you comment on the, the perceptions of consumers, and I've referenced that a couple times here too. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I'm always afraid it come, I'll come across as, hey, I know better than the average Joe out there or whatever it is. I, I mean, I might be a little bit better informed on certain subjects. The problem is, I believe, the marketing that is done by groups, environmental groups, or whatever that might be with an agenda, and and and, uh you know you, you can probably really follow the money in a lot of cases. But there's an agenda there, and they're feeding misinformation to the public. And so we're kind of trying to you know it, it, we definitely don't want to make it sound like we're 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 saying consumers don't know what they're doing or they don't understand things. Really, they're being fed fed kind of bad information, so to speak.
2: I think there's an awful lot of comparisons between what the big organic industry, you know, the the Organic Consumers Association in the States is doing compared to what the tobacco companies did in the the 1960s. So when the U.S. Surgeon General came out and said, you know, cigarettes cause cancer, most of the tobacco industry set up research institutes to make them look like, you know, sort of paralleled to, to academic research institutes to fund research that would say that, you know, smoking, does not cause cancer and and what the organic industry has done is they've duplicated what the tobacco industry did 60 years ago they're setting up these you know organic industry funded sort of research think tanks or um institutions to to generate research that's never published in peer-reviewed journal articles yet they put this out and they make memes and infographics and and they really talk about the benefits of organic and they run down you know, conventional agriculture to, to deliberately misinform the public about the safety of, of all of modern agriculture. I think we've got to find a way that, you know, we're not just simply butting heads with the organic industry. You know, um, it's unfortunate that, that some of the people in the organic movement have chose to demonize modern agriculture and, and misinform the public. I, I think it's great that we have the opportunity for consumers if they want conventional or they want organic they can go in and they can find those products on virtually any grocery store shelf in in either of our countries um that speaks to the the incredible ability and the resourcefulness of our system to to grow these products and and get them onto grocery stores i just don't see the value in in trying to to verbally um, undermine and attack um either side i I try to provide facts to the consumers so like you say you know letting the public know that chemicals are, are an allowable part of organic food production. And when consumers have questions about that, I'll I'll talk about the safety of some of the organic chemicals. I mean, there's been numerous news stories in the last two or three years where organic grape growers in France have been moving away uh, from organic production because the, the copper sulfide that they use uh, as an insecticide is so damaging to their soil that that they, they just don't want to, to put know um, those kind of toxic organic chemicals in their soils anymore so i think it's a great sign that you know farmers are are saying you know what maybe organic isn't the best way for me to be profitable and and so they're thinking about it Um, some of our big farmers in canada are growing gm crops and organic because in canada and the states you know we're different than europe in europe your entire farm has to be organic and here it's by field right so Farmers will grow GM crops, and they'll get the weeds cleaned up, and then they'll do the transition. They'll come in, they'll do a few years of organic production. Once the weeds get to be too bad, they'll put back in a GM crop. And organics is something that large farmers are doing to to keep their input costs down, and they get a bit of a price premium. So it, it's it's just part of their natural um, crop rotation plans.
1: It's really too bad that it's kind of a, a us and them type discussion because there are aspects of, for instance, the organic industry doesn't allow genetically modified crops at this point. Which, really, you know, the example I always use is they're spraying BT on their crops, but you know, if you uh-huh. make the plant produce that, suddenly they can't use it. And so there's really options that would be out there that we really could make a nice system. Unfortunately. Um, it's kind of an all or nothing type approach a lot of times. Although, as you mentioned, individual farmers often have some organic acres and some conventional acres.
2: Yeah, I think you know some of the the organic rigidity around the use of certain technologies really comes. Their their decisions are emotional ones, largely again how the European Union has been making their decisions. And if we have science and we make decisions based on science, then I think that's where the organic industry can benefit from using gene edited varieties. I I think, you know, one of the, there's some research in Illinois that's looking at using gene editing to increase the carbon sequestration of, of corn. And so they've, they've got corn varieties that are sequestering 20 to 30% more corn that's eating, uh, leading to a 10 to 12% yield bump. So, so talk about a, a win-win technology, right? He, the farmer's winning because he's getting a little bit more yield, but you and I and, and everybody else in society is, is winning because these plants are sequestering more carbon than they would have done otherwise. And, and I think that's something that consumers are saying they want. They want to buy products that are branded for more sustainability. They don't want to pay more money for it. So we, we did a bit of a, a back of the envelope calculation here and we estimated that uh, a loaf, a single loaf of white bread sequesters 25 grams of carbon. So as the egg industry, could we, could we really get out front and say, you know what? This loaf of bread sequestered 25 grams of carbon. It's priced the same as every other loaf of white bread. It would be really interesting to track the sales volume and see if consumers are, you know, willing to to support that type of sustainability with a bit of a note that says you know this was achieved through modern agriculture technologies that involve genetically modified seed and and chemicals to control um um, to to protect the crops then i think you know we're we're informing the consumers but we're giving them something that that they say they're looking for so you know we could bring that over into past and other um grocery store items that that we would have the ability Ability to, to provide some estimates to how much carbon sequestered.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting direction to take that conversation. I think it would definitely carry a lot of weight from a consumer perspective. We started talking this morning about you know, Sri Lanka. Um, and as an economist, when you look towards the future, are you optimistic when you consider the future of biotechnology and regulation, freedom to operate? I guess it's question one. Question two is what most excites you about Biotechnology and the ags in the ag, in the ag uh, world.
2: I am optimistic, Preston, and, and I think most of that optimism comes from the the price increases in food products over the last two and a half years. We've we've seen the pandemic affect supply, and and so that's pushed up prices. Uh, the uncertainty with the war in Ukraine and Russia, and the, and the price of oil and gas. I, I think a lot of consumers are going to be more open-minded to innovation than they maybe would have been three or four years ago because they're seeing food inflation rate right, of eight, 9% a month. Um, and, and they realize that when they go out and they, they spend $50 for, for groceries, for, for uh, their, their purchasing, they're bringing it home in smaller, and smaller bags every time. So I, I think, even in North America, the, the food banks are saying they're they're at an all-time high. People here, I've talked to the media saying that, you know, people in North America are now skipping one meal a, a day or one meal every couple of days to help lower their... And, and so I, I'm optimistic that the pressure that has been put on our food systems over the last couple of years is, is really going to do a bit of a, a consumer shift saying, you know, We're really open to innovative plant breeding technologies and and ways of producing food. Um, And and where my most enthusiastic about is is this research around increasing plants ability to sequester carbon. I I was talking about that at a conference in Europe a couple of few years ago, I guess, um, before the pandemic, talking to an individual who was part of an environmental activist group in, in Europe. And said, so if you could put a tree or like some flowers or a shrub in your backyard that would sequester more carbon, would that change your view of biotechnology? And he said to me, he's, you know, I had absolutely no idea that the science could do something like that. But he said, if I could put things in my own yard or even growing vegetables that would, I knew would have a better impact for the environment, he said, that would cause me to, to reassess my opposition to biotech. So I... I think that we're now with gene editing to get into that more sustainable side of things with, with increasing carbon sequestration, that is a, Uh, something the public is saying we want this in our food products so agriculture and the science is going to be able to deliver so i think that opens up a tremendous opportunity for for agriculture and conventional agriculture and innovations just to start branding products as being more sustainable here's how much carbon's been sequestered and and these types of things and and we've reduced ghg emissions by by so many milligrams or uh, so i think there's tremendous opportunities to to do a better job of connecting that you know the the field to the fork through mechanisms that the public are saying we we want this information if you can if you can get us that information we'll buy your products
1: there is absolutely reason for optimism and i think that's something we haven't really thought so much about before and this is a kind of a new topic the idea of bioengineering crops to sequester carbon or be You know, we know already that there are benefits for the environment from genetically modified crops. And now if we could, you know, if it could be a direct benefit as opposed to reduction in crop protection products applied over the top or whatever that might be, people can really see that more directly. You've talked about a lot of interesting things here today. We've enjoyed the conversation. Once again, really appreciate you coming on again. You referenced your blog, safefood.ca, S-A-I-F food.ca. Um, There's a lot of great stuff on there for people to check out. Is there another way that people can interact with you, um, you know, if they have questions about what we've talked about here today?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, My email is uh, stuart.smythe at usask.ca, S-T-U-A-R-T dot S-M-Y-T-H at U-S-A-S-K dot C-A. Yeah, if anybody has any questions or they or if they want to, to check some of this literature out that that we've been talking about today, um uh, drop me an email and I'm more than happy to to send you the links or the articles that um, that that's come up in our conversation this morning.
0: Well, Stuart, we appreciate it. It's been a
2: pleasure. Take Anytime, Jason Preston, it was a pleasure spending a bit of my morning with you guys.
1: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.